0: Before we get into the study, let's open the word of prayer. Father, we thank you, dear Lord, for your wonderful joy and the wonderful hope and the wonderful truth that we have in the Word of God and how it blesses us and that it does indeed revive us again. Dear Lord, we're looking at a passage this morning that should encourage each and every one of us, those of us who are saved and know you, But also, dear Lord, to give pause to those who are yet to come to the knowledge of the truth of who you are. That all things may indeed work together for good to them that love you. And what a joy it is. Lord, we praise you for this time. We thank you for this opportunity. And we ask you, dear Lord, that you would please bless this time. Open the eyes of our understanding, Father, that we could rejoice in you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 8, I have a new contraption here, so I have a little microphone and now I can walk all over the place and it's really good, it's it's nifty, I like it anyway, I invented it myself. (laughs) Romans chapter 8, the one verse that we're going to be looking at is verse 28, but in order to get some sort of a context, we still need to take it a little bit earlier than that. So if we can have a look from verse, let's look from verse 25, verse 25 of Romans chapter 8, it says, but if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what he is, the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren." No doubt for some of you who are familiar with this text, it has been a favourite of yours. Um, many of you would have committed it to memory. Um, many of you would, would, would think about this particular verse, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. You'd remember that text when you're going through trials when you're going through the difficulties. And you know what's really interesting about it? What's really interesting about it is that is usually the time that we focus and we see that verse come to life. And that's the context of it. Because what we are looking for is all things. What are all things? We're going to touch on that in the first point this morning. But also to keep something else in mind, that when we're going through really dark times and really difficult times within our lives, it's really difficult to understand or to see how all things can actually work together for good. It's difficult for a a teenager who who has watched his parents separate. It's difficult for him or her at that time to see how this can work together for good. It's, It's difficult for... For a single mother who has to work and has to care for her child and losing the position at work and losing the opportunity and the ability to properly care it 's difficult at that time for her to see how this can work together for their good it 's difficult when you lose a loved one it 's difficult when um, you know when you 're suffering with trials of health when when those debilitating things and being the breadwinner being the one that is the one that cares for the family, for you to be all of a sudden um, in, a, in, a, in a real trial of health, it's really difficult to see how. this can work together, for good. It is difficult to see. But in this text, you're going to find an answer, and it's specific and vital to you personally. The passage doesn't deal in, in generalities. It deals with individuals. The passage doesn't teach that evil does not have evil effects. But it does teach that all evil is worked together for the benefit of them that love God. How? It comes together. Well, that's what we're going to be getting into this morning. And I pray that it's an encouragement for you. So we've got four points again. The first one is benefit bracketed by evil. The text, it's location of the text to give us our, uh, our context. The second point is evil blesses the beneficiary. The third point is benevolence imparted by purpose. The word bene, right, is an Italian or Latin word for good. Okay, so when you've got words like benefit, benevolence, uh, benevolent, beneficiary, understand that that's what that's referring to. It's referring to that which is, which is good. The third point is benevolence imparted by purpose. And the fourth is purpose according to God's will. So the first point, it's more important to understand the location of the text. Okay. And my point is, and what I want you to understand uh, that I'm trying to bring out, so you, you, you got this ahead of time, is my claim is that the phrase all things refers to all evil things. It refers to all evil things. And we can see that by the, by the context. From verse 17, we recognize a point that Paul is making. Okay? He says there that if we suffer with him, in other words, if we suffer with Christ, that we may be also glorified together. Okay? Verse 17 then, he goes on to and he says, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. And then he goes on again down to verse 27, where he's speaking about creation itself also groaning and travailing. And then we have verse 28. And Verse 28, which is our passage. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. You'll notice that verse 28 begins with a conjunction, begins with and. And is a, it's a linking word. It links everything that's gone before it to it. Okay, to that which coming immediately after, verse twenty-nine also begins with a conjunction. It says, "For, for," okay, and this is that which is telling us the explanation, the reason why, because it's God conforming us. In other words, He's He's shaping us into the image of His Son, and that's what that is. And then we've got it continuing through verse thirty with the blessings that we have to be encouraged. And then right down to verse 35, where Paul again takes up this, um, this, this sequence of, of, of sufferings, but also the blessing that comes from it. So he speaks about it in verse 35. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And then he speaks about being killed all the day long as sheep to the slaughter. He says in these things we are more than conquerors in verse 37. Verse 38, he says, what what an incredible summary. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what you have is an open bracket, a closed bracket, And then you have that passage that we're looking at in between, that all things work together for good. And that's one of the reasons why I've brought out the understanding that this is all evil things. It's it's respecting to all evil things. Understand that for all things to work together for good, we can safely say these things are not good in and of themselves. They're not good until they are worked together by God. They have to be worked together, even independently they're not necessarily good in and of themselves. They have to be worked together and that's how God works. That's not unusual. Um, In the old days you'd go to a chemist and uh, the chemist would have a prescription but the chemist himself would actually make up the individual ingredients for the drug or for whatever it was that was going to be served. Then those ingredients come from different chemicals, different things that are actually put in there. You can look at a car. A car can't function on its individual parts. It has to be worked together. Everything works together for that good, for that thing to work properly. Our own body is made up of so many different systems. None of them work in their individual parts. They have to be worked together. Many components work together. And this is what God is speaking about in this passage. It all works together. So, verse 28, is a benefit bracketed by evil. God's given us, verse 28, as an encouragement to patience and hope and joy. True, true joy. And a wonderful hope that we can have in adversity. There's another thing here to consider, though. um, And that is with respect to one of the things that goes through your mind, especially when when you're struggling in your own walk, when you're struggling with sin in your life. And you look at this passage. And one of the questions come up is, is is sin one of those evils that actually work together for good? Because we would often think that that's true. It's really important that you cannot include that which God has specifically excluded. We know what sin is. The simple answer is no. No, sin in and of itself cannot work together for good. We know that because the Bible teaches that sin is a precursor of death. It's the very thing that goes before death. James speaks about it. He says, When lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. It's completely excluded from this. And if it's specifically excluded, it cannot be included in this particular passage. Though the sins of the world, those sins that are directed toward a believer the persecutions that we would go through, the trials, the mockings, the imprisonments, the scourgings, those sins directed toward the believer, however, are very different. Those are worked toward good for the believer. But the believer's own personal sin doesn't. Unrepented sin cannot bring forth any good. The qualification of our text refers to those that love God. Yet sin itself demonstrates a disregard of God. By attending to that which led to the original separation of us. The original separation between God and man was for sin. It separated us. Should we now entertain it thinking that that's going to bring about a good? Logically, it doesn't even work. It doesn't work contextually. It doesn't work logically. Sin dulls our minds. It dulls our love toward God and toward others. It increases our own personal anxieties. It increases our self-centeredness. It leads to a snowballing of bad decisions. And when it's finished, it brings forth death. Nevertheless, sin repented of turns to our good. Sin repented of does turn to our good as we humble ourselves before him. We seek his face. And we turn from our own disobedience, rejoicing in his love and in his grace. Repented sin makes us more watchful against sin. It increases our duty to grow in Christ, to be conformed into his image. Do you understand? But sin held to and not repented of doesn't benefit at all. It can't benefit. Brethren, we all wrestle with sin, even as born-again Christians, even as those who have had the light of the gospel shunned within our lives. And we've spoken about that. We've looked at chapter 7 of Romans. We've looked at and found that we are more than conquerors in in chapter 8, verse 1. We see that. But it's sin repented of that works to our good. It does make us more watchful. And it does bless us in that regard, but that regard only. The second point is that evil blesses the beneficiary. Evil blesses the beneficiary. Have a look at the text, it says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. All things work together for good to them. To them specifically, the beneficiary. The passage gives us an incredible insight and a beginning of the, the power and the sovereignty of God. How incredible is that? I mean, think about it, that... God can actually transform evil that's happening within our lives and actually turn it to a complete benefit. He can flip what we see as something that is evil and wicked and that we're struggling with and the sufferings that we have and He can miraculously transform it into a benefit. To turn it around deliberately. Why? Because He is our Lord and He is our God and He knows the struggles that we go through. But what a wonderful blessing to see this promise. See, we don't see a lot of the things ahead of time of how things are going to finish up. When we're going through a particular struggle, we're not looking down the road. Ravi Zacharias gave a, uh, gave a really interesting um, anecdote. It's, a, it's an old um, Middle East folklore tale. And it tells about a, uh, it tells about a man who, who'd lost his horse. His horse had run away. And the neighbour comes next door and he says to him, bad luck, that you lost your horse, that's not really good. And the the man says to him, well, what do I I know about these things? About a week later, the horse comes back with 20 other horses with him. And the neighbour goes back next door and he says to him, wow, that wasn't bad luck, that was good luck. The horse came back with 20 other horses. And he goes, well, what do I know about these things? And the following week, his, his son was actually taming one of the wild horses. The wild horse actually kicked him and broke his leg. Neighbor came back and he goes, bad luck that your son's uh, leg is broken by one of those wild horses. Bad luck they came back. And he goes, well, what do I know about good luck and bad luck? What do I know? You know? And then a little bit later, these band of thieves and robbers actually came looking for new recruits for their, uh, for their gang. And they looked at the young lad and they actually saw that he was lame and he couldn't walk because he had a broken leg. So they overlooked him and moved on. <coughs> the next door neighbor came and good luck that, that his leg was broken, otherwise he would have been... You know what I mean? We, we, our problem is that when we're going through our difficulties and we're going through our struggles and we're going through our trials, we don't see what God is doing at the end of the road, at the end of the line. You know, I'd spoken to a young man recently and I said, you know, when you're going through a, tr- a tunnel, there's a lot, a lot of times we don't see the light at the end of the tunnel and we don't see that light because we're often in a bend. You know? And he responded, yeah, but it could be another train. <laughs> Really, when people are going through depression, it's really difficult to get through. You know, just—it's you know, hard. But evil blesses the beneficiary. We see that all things, evil particularly, actually blesses the beneficiary. What we think is evil actually turns to good. In fact, it works together for good. That is, the very suffering itself is the seed from which good grows. What we think as evil, God transforms. To good, Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50 for me, please. Genesis chapter 50. And verse 15 is where we're going to be taking our text. Verse 18, we're going to be taking our text from there. The passage we're going to be looking at tells us the end of a story that began with 12 brothers, the brothers of Jacob. The second youngest brother had dreams. He had dreams where God showed him that he is going to be the ruler over his entire family. Um, His ten brothers didn't like that. They actually were fairly jealous about it. Um, He had a couple of dreams and unfortunately young Joseph was a little bit naive in sharing some of those dreams to his family. Anyway, there came a day when he went into Dothan to actually see his brothers and his brothers actually saw him coming and they said, Oh, look, behold, this dreamer cometh, they say. And they wanted to kill him, that they would be rid of him forever. But instead of killing him, they were persuaded to just cast him into a pit and eventually he was actually sold to an Ishmaelite band who brought him as a slave to Egypt and sold him to Potiphar in Egypt. Anyway, a whole bunch of things happened. But at that particular time, Joseph was 17 years old. He was only a young man. 22 years would go by before he saw his brethren again. But this time, when he saw his brethren, after 22 years, Joseph was the second in charge of the known world at that time. He was the governor of all the land. Only Pharaoh had authority over him. What an incredible position to be in. And that's when his brethren saw him. Jacob also came into the land with the family And they were all there. But now we're taking up our text where Jacob has died. Another 17 years have been added to this. So Joseph was 39 years of age when he saw his brethren for the first time. He nurtured them for another 17 years. So now he's 56 years of age at this time. But there still hasn't been, you get the impression there still hasn't been this reconciliation here with the brethren. Okay, So the brothers are worried and they're asking somebody to go and speak to Joseph and ask, please forgive us, because now that dad's died, for sure, the sin that with the trespass that we did before, he's going to put back on us. So we'll take our text at verse 18. Have a look at this. And it says, And his brethren also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we be thy servants. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day, to save much people alive. Now, therefore, fear not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. And we know the end of this story. The end of this story is that they began with 70 people that actually came into Egypt and they left with over 2 million people. 430 years they spent in Egypt at that time. And then we have the Exodus story and account after that. We've got the nation of Israel. They went in as a family. They came out as a nation and a powerful nation at that. A very, very powerful nation for having that that many people. So that's one example. That's just one. I mean, we could speak about Noah. Noah wasn't, wasn't taken out of the world before the flood, but he was preserved through the flood. Matter of fact, he was actually saved from all the evil that was occurring in the land in those days. We can look at Daniel. We look at his three friends. His three friends weren't spared the fire. Matter of fact, they actually said to Nebuchadnezzar, if it is for our God to deliver us, we'll be delivered. But if, we, if not, we will not bow down to thy gods, O king. All right? So they already weren't worried about getting, being cast into the fiery furnace. Now, not only were they cast into the furnace, not only did God not shorten the time they were there, but incredibly, the only thing that was actually burnt was their bonds. Isn't that interesting? When they walked out of the furnace, they didn't even have the smell of fire on them. But their bonds were burnt and taken off. The fire itself set them free. Isn't incredible? And then we've got the example of of Job. Look, Anybody that's that's read the book of Job, I'd encourage you, even tonight or today, read just the first two chapters. Read the first two chapters. If you don't want to read the whole book, just read the first two. Have a look at how Job deals with the calamities that he actually, that he actually goes through. Okay? And what we find at the end of the book, the last ten chapters, so if you're really courageous, read the last ten chapters as well. Okay? You see how God has brought about his deliverance. And also blessed him twofold. He'd been blessed twice as much as what he had before. But he endured a lot of suffering along the way. It still worked to his good. It still worked to his good. Now one problem is that we still like to think we're in control. You know one of the wonderful joys is that we're not. God is. He is in control. He is in control. The towards the middle of the passage where Job is giving his, his, um, his defence, speaking about God, he says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. How incredible is that? Imagine having that faith. Imagine having that faith. We call these Job moments. I don't know if you've ever had them. I've had them. I've had plenty of them. I've told you about a few of them. A lot of them are really funny because they happen one after the other. Even at the time, we're going through misery, but when one happens after the other, after the other, after the other, automatically I know God's getting my attention. God's got He's got this. I'm not going to worry about it. You know, When you recognise those Job moments, you don't stress about it anymore. You fall on your face before the Lord and you say, naked I came into this world and naked will I depart thither. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, what a wonderful joy. Having that joy, right? It's everything. Especially, look, I don't know about you, but I, I can't understand. It's so difficult to endure going through trials for no purpose. If there's no purpose to the trials, going through them is so much more difficult to bear. And that's where the world's at today. The world's at that point Right now, having rejected God, rejected the truth of God, rejected the power that comes from Him, the world is going through some incredible torments and trials. And they think the answer is within themselves. But you know what we find in the general population? You know how we deal with it? We deal with it with entertainments. We deal with it by tuning out. We'll deal with it with drugs. We will deal with it with with alcohol. We will deal with it with um, revelings. Some of them even recognise its dilemma and they deal with it with suicide. They deal with it in ways that to them seems feasible, not realising God is in control because they don't see a purpose to their suffering. They don't see that there is a a benefit that can come from it. How do people deal with calamity without God? You know, when you're saved and you're born again... Do you know when you're going through a difficult time? That's the one question you ask. How how do people live their lives without God? I can't imagine living my life anymore without God. I was without God for 29 years. You know. But thinking back then, mate, I can't understand how we would live our life without Him. When the why question has no answer, how's it dealt with? Why? Why am I going through what I'm going through? When it doesn't have an answer, how do you deal with it? Not only temporal, but eternal benefit. We have both a temporal and an eternal benefit. Verses 18 to 23 of Romans chapter 8 provides for us a a scope and a context. Verse 18 simply says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. And it ends with verse 23, And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to it, the redemption of our bodies. If you're in Romans, turn forward to Second Corinthians chapter 4, because this will give us a bit of a confirmation for our scope. One of the things we can often come to our minds is that we think that there is a that these evil that are going to be turned to good is going to be turned to good now, for now, all right? So we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You know, prosperity gospels preached in so many churches today and and one of the the really tragic things about it is that they are so earthly chained uh, that they have no eternal benefit, you know? There's no benefit to them eternally because they're chained to this world this this text this passage that we're looking at doesn't limit the good to this world for some it's not even in this world for some it's eternal second corinthians chapter 4 verses 17 to 18 paul says the same thing he says for our light affliction which is but for a moment how long is our life life's oh, nice, a moment a life's a moment, it's a, it's a, um, a vapour, it's a, it's a blade of grass that's going to wither away. It's, it's, it's like the morning dew compared to eternity. Okay? For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal." James tells us to count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. We've seen that before. King David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, he says, For his anger endureth but a moment, in his favour is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. These things are temporary. The struggles and the trials we might go through are temporary. So knowing that there is a purpose in suffering helps us endure it. With patience. In fact, you can even rejoice in it. You can even rejoice in it. The third point here is benevolence imparted by purpose. With the verse that we were looking at, the focal point is to them that love God, to them who are the called. It's right in the middle of the verse. We see that this benevolence, this, this blessing, this, this good, is imparted <coughs> not specifically to today but to tomorrow. And not particularly for here, but also for hereafter. And we can certainly see the benefit in this life. But if we see it in eternity, it's going to last for eternity. And, um, and that's, that's where my focus would be. That's where my treasure I would love to have. But we see also that it's imparted by, by purpose. It's, it's imparted specifically to them that love God. And particularly to them who are thee called. The passage we're looking at this morning is not applicable to all people. It's not applicable to all people. One of the things we know, that we know that God makes his sun shine onto the evil and of the good. We know that he brings down rain on the evil and on the good. But we know that with respect to this passage, um, we know that for some people, no good can come from evil. No good can come from evil, but to them that love God, all things work together for good. It's for them who have experienced that wonderful grace of God, that, that wonderful blessing, being now joined to the Father, joined to God, we've been, we've been um, moved from rebellion to reconciliation. You know we're not enemies of God anymore. We're His children. And to his children, all things work together for good. Just a practical thought. Um, 2016, there are going to be elections. Uh, They're going to be in Chad, Peru, Syria, Serbia, Iran, the Philippines, Dominican Republic, Macedonia, Russia, Belarus, Morocco, Bulgaria, Georgia, Nicaragua, Nigeria, Austria, Germany, Ireland, Portugal, Romania, Scotland, the US and Australia and probably some other countries. We're going to have elections this year. We're going to have elections this year. Some may have good leaders, um, but by far the majority won't have good leaders. Some of them you can tell by looking at the options and you reg- realise it's just you know, one of another bad option. you know. Um, but 2 Peter tells us something really interesting. He says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake whether it be to the king as supreme or to governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. Interesting. God can somehow, regardless of the government put in power, make that government both a punishment to the evildoers but also for the benefit or for the praise of them that do well. Romans 13 tells us a similar thing. He says, it gives us a similar command all the way through it, but then it says in verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Rulers are a terror to the evil. Even evil rulers are a terror to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? He says, do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. Again, we've got a similar construct, don't we? All things work together for good to them that love God. You don't have to fear the people that are put in power of our government, brethren. You don't have to fear them. You have to be wise in casting your vote. You have to be wise in casting your vote. My argument has always been the same. My vote will be cast toward that individual that, to me, better represents Christ than any other person that's there. Now, they're miles away. We know that. We know that. And we can't know anything but by their policy. But those that better represent Christ will be getting my vote. It's the only time I've got a chance to speak. It's the only time that my vote's going to count. And blown if I'm going to waste it. I'm not going to waste it on that. But I also recognise and understand that regardless of what's going on, it can still work together for good to them that love God. So... Many people are going to be suffering evil that will have no comfort in their sufferings and will ever work to a good purpose. Government is the entity used by God for just that intent. There are those who do not love God. This passage doesn't apply to them. This passage doesn't apply to them. For the benefit of the text is imparted on purpose according to God's will. No unconverted man or woman can love God. They just can't. The Bible teaches, in fact, that they hate him, that they're lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. These cannot be comforted by this text. The text is exclusive, at least not until they rest in him anyway. Or they're converted by him and they trust him for their souls. But these trust in the good of this life and this world's promises. They trust that the deceptions with which they have been deceived will somehow prove true. That riches gratify and bring contentment. That that lust can actually be fulfilled. That the eyes can be satisfied and that their fiery pride can indeed say it is enough. They think that they can be fulfilled and they're deceived. They think that they're rich and increased with goods and in need of nothing, not realising that they are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And yet here's Christ. In the passage in Revelation, he's knocking, he's knocking, he's outside and he's knocking and he's calling and he says, if any man, if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me, Revelation 3.20. Now the passage isn't applicable to them, it's not applicable to those that aren't the Lord's. To those that are such, nothing they do can turn to good. And that's the tragedy. See, for the Christian, everything that is evil can be turned to good. All things work together for good. But for those that are not the Lord's, there is no end that is good. Regardless of what they go through in this life, regardless of the benefits that they might receive, regardless of the pleasures that they might attain to, it cannot work together for good but evil in the end. The Bible teaches that after the hardness and impenitent heart, they treasure up to themselves wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. James, remember James? While telling us to rejoice in our trials, in chapter 5, he says this, "'Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered and the rust of them shall be a witness against you.' And you shall eat your flesh as if it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. See, the wicked don't even know where to find consolation. They don't even know where to find rest. They don't know where to find comfort. Have a, turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 47. Because even in their own trials, they still do not seek after God. They look to signs. They'll look to astrological pro- prognostications every single month. You know, we see that, don't we? I mean, do you recognise that in our newspapers we still have astrology? You yeah, know how many people actually look at those things? You know? You've got men reading the Women's Weekly these days, looking at their stars, you know, for goodness sakes. You know? What are they looking for for comfort? They're looking for some future benefit. And you know, the stars are always pretty good, you know? Or oh, they'll go to clairvoyance and they'll they'll get their cards read. My mother was a clairvoyant. You know, she used to read the tarot cards. Matter of fact, she used to have a card and she'll stick it on her fridge, and she'll say that's the day that I'm going to have today. You recognise the superstition that comes? Do you see that the level of comfort that they look for? Now, this isn't new. Just in case you thought it was new, this isn't new. This is ancient. Isaiah 47. Have a look at verse 12 and and 13. This is the Lord speaking here. He says, Stand now with thine enchantments and with the multitude of thy sorceries, wherein thou hast laboured from thy youth. If so be, thou shalt be able to profit. If so be, thou mayest prevail. Thou art weighed in the multitude of thy counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, the monthly prognosticators stand up and save thee from these things that shall come upon thee. Hmm. Earlier on, the Lord says, Woe to the rebellious children that saith, saith the Lord, that take counsel, but not of me, and that cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. You see, These follow after other gods to deliver them. Like Ahaz, those same gods, however, won't be their deliverance. These idolatrous desires will actually become their own ruin. By looking for that deliverance through idols, those idols themselves will ruin them. There is no good that can come of them. And there is no good that comes to those who love not God. But this has never been God's desire. Friends, you know, this has never been God's desire. It's still not God's desire. His desire is only that we would come to Him, that we would hear the call. The passage we've got under consideration is a benevolence imparted by purpose, but it can only be to all who believe. But this can apply to any one of you that are sitting here today. It can apply. All things can work together for good to you from today onwards, you can indeed be from this moment who this text applies to. You can be the called. As this call is being heard by you today. Jesus said, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. God promises that all who seek him diligently will find him when they seek for him with all their heart. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth, And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. The promise and all the promises of God will also pertain to you. So why wait? Why wait? Why delay? Why put this off? I don't understand. I don't understand why put this off. When all the benefits can come to you by knowing Christ and realizing that there is a purpose to your life, knowing that there is a purpose to your sufferings, having that transformed to that which is good, why put it off? What is it in this world that you're looking for that's going to fulfill your lust? when the Bible says nothing will, The riches in this life won't give you satisfaction. Guys, you only have to look around you. You only have to look at the media. You only have to look at the the so-called stars in this world. They're taking their own lives. Why? Why? They've reached that end where they thought would give them fulfilment and they found nothing but emptiness. And yet you've got the poorest of the poor who trust in Christ and want for nothing more. They want for nothing more. Last point, purposed according to God's will. And it's the last portion of the text, the called according to his purpose. We can admit that there's something incredible about the sovereignty and the power of God to be able to transform an evil into a good, to have it all work together for their good. We can find it amazing that God's sovereignty can work in a way that he can deal with a particular people in one way while allowing the other to end in their natural course. It's difficult to comprehend how he does it. We don't know how he does it. But it's this that I want you to trust. So for the balance of this verse, we begin to touch on two specifics about God's sovereign grace and his purpose calling. The first one is that he calls. The second one is that he determines outcomes. God determines outcomes. There's not a person here that is born again into that wonderful love of God that God hasn't called. He's called each one of us. He calls you now. He calls you now. And some of you who don't know Christ already experiencing a call within your life now. The Spirit of God is already working in your life now. You're hearing God's call. To some of you, you're feeling uncomfortable. To some of you, you're feeling hopeful. Okay those of you who don't know Christ are hearing God's call now okay respond respond within yourself even respond and ask the Lord to actually come into that life of yours that he can change it when Jesus commanded his disciples the call went to all the world He spoke to his disciples and he said this in Mark chapter 16. He says, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. In Luke chapter 24, he said that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning in Jerusalem. In the last two verses of Matthew, he gave command clearly, saying, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things or whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Let's begin to bring this to a close. Peter's just finished his sermon, which began in verse 14 of Acts chapter 2. He's preaching to them of what has occurred and the coming of God's spirit on that day. He explained Christ, who he is and why he came and why he rose from the dead. Peter used the Old Testament scripture to confirm all that was occurring at that time as God's spirit was being poured out upon the people. And this is the beginning of the church. This is Pentecost. This is the very beginning of the church. To that point, we pick up the passage where many have come under that calling conviction, the one that I've just been speaking about. They've had that conviction within their hearts and they desire to know what to do. And this might reflect some of you that are hearing this sermon this morning. Acts chapter 2, and we'll take our text from verse 37. And it says, Now when they heard this, this is all the people listening to the sermon, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent, repent. And be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as as many as the Lord our God shall call. Verse 40, he says, and with many many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptised and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. God called, some answered. And I say some. We look at it and we find 3,000 people. We're rejoicing that two people were saved that we know of in the last couple of weeks. 3,000 people came to Christ. 3,000, but I'm telling you some were saved. Not all. Because you see, the word of God went into all the world. It went into all the land. It went into all of Jerusalem. The call went out. Some were saved. Some heeded the call. Some heeded the call. Will you? Will you heed the call? The second point is that he determines the outcomes and they're according to his purpose. And this is where I'm going to leave my sermon because the next couple of verses, the next few verses that we're going to be talking about is going to lead into that wonderful hope that we have for eternity, that, that, that glorious blessing that we have in the sovereignty of God. Okay, Let's take our text from verse 28, where we were in Romans, and we'll finish it there. I'm going to go from 28 just to 31. The text says, "...and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are thee called according to his purpose." for whom he did foreknow he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren moreover whom he did predestinate them he also called and whom he called them he also justified and whom he justified them he also glorified what shall we say then to, what shall we then say to these things if god be for us who can be against us as you read that text And the way that you read it and the clarity with which it was given to you, that's how I read it. I don't try and transform it or change it in any other way. It's a beautiful passage of the Bible. But how incredible is that? If God be for us, who can be against us? If God be for us, who can be against us? None can. None can. Brethren, the ultimate evil that can be done to us is death. But as death springs us immediately into eternal life in glory, what can we say but all things work together for good to them that love God? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, dear Lord, for the wonderful blessing of the word of God, a word that encourages us, a word that gives to us abounding joy, dear Father, even in the midst of trials. Father, though you slay us, we would yet trust you. And we pray, dear Father, that we can live our lives in the victory, dear Father, that you have already set before us. But we also pray, dear Lord, and our heart goes out to those who know not God. We pray, dear Lord, for those even in this congregation that may not know you. And we ask you, dear Lord, that the call that you're placing upon their hearts will never go away, but it will continue to prick their conscience until, dear Lord, they would come at the foot of the cross, that they would repent, dear Lord, and surrender their lives to you completely and that all things may indeed work together for good to them that love you we rejoice dear father in this we pray dear lord that you'll be with us this afternoon that our conversation will be pleasing unto thee and that we could grow in you help us rejoice in each other's company dear lord as well we thank you in jesus glorious name amen